We all love a beautiful view and a well-appointed hotel, but have you ever considered that you might travel simply for smell, texture and sound? The salty ozone of a seashore, those evening walks when Bougainvillea fills the air, or even that reassuring must as a deck chair or tent is canvas unfurled for the first time in the season. Making this episode of Confect Corner has reminded me how powerful the senses can be. Early this week, we smelt the essence of summer with perfumer Lynn Harris. Scents like fig and orange trees, which sparked memories that we discussed with a kind of swooning escapism that surely should be rationed. This episode is an ode to summer, but also to the senses. We explore how inspiration itself comes from oblique memories. For fashion designer Christina Shipilova, it's the traditional garments of her Slovakian childhood home. For Lynn Harris, it's her grandfather's carpentry workshop with its wood chips and old machines. For Swiss Tamil singer Priya Raghu, it was the family singing sessions with her brother that set her on course to compose and perform her distinct and beautiful songs. So while you might not have travelled so much of late, this episode offers a dive into a cool pool, a babbling brook, a Turkish rose and much more. This is Confect Corner. For me, it's being naked in the woods and just really letting go of yourself and your senses and just letting the fragrance permeate your skin. You know, when you're a kid, you're, you're drawn to things because you can touch them. And then um, the education started there with, you know, Sunday mornings really early at sunrise, digging through boxes of old brass objects and ceramics and linens and textiles. I always remember these moments. It was like a celebration of something you are just staring at and you cannot really understand how it is possible to make such beautiful things only by hand. Welcome to the fifth episode of Confect Corner. And each month I'm joined by Julian Tobias and Confect Style Director Marcella Palak. And for the first time since episode one, I finally have a friend back in the studio with me as Julian has arrived back from Zurich in London at last. <laughs> it's so nice to be sitting around the table and having a conversation with you face to face. I have to say I've missed you, but also very envious to, you know, got your dispatches on the road. So nice to have oh. been in, in Zurich. Yeah, to be on assignment in Switzerland. I mean, what more could a girl want during this time when sort of there is so little travel and so few foreign assignments? I know, Marcella, actually, <laughs> Julian sent me a few shots of a beautiful raft in Badi Kusnacht and I felt immediately <laughs> yearning to dive off it. So have you been doing much of that lately? <laughs> yes, I'm waiting for you in Utoke. I was there this morning for a swim, like every morning when it's sunshine and it was just, yeah, like Zurich is waiting for you in Utoke. It was amazing. Well, the moment we can hop on a plane and come without some punishing restrictions. I'll be there. And Utoko is just the most beautiful place. It's all wooden and ancient and just lovely drinks, lovely terraces. <laughs> um, well, every episode, we start by discussing something that has caught our eye over the past month. And this could be a summer dress, a fantastic film, a spot for a great alfresco dining, or a brilliant piece of writing. Uh, Gillian, what's been on your radar this June? 
Well, mine's food. Um, I came back from Switzerland, got out of quarantine. One of the first things I did is managed to get a table, which is very difficult, at a, a new restaurant called uh, Imrad Syrian Kitchen. And uh, it's in Kingley Court near Carnaby Street in London. It's not just that the food is this most amazing Damascian Syrian food, but it's the story. And it's a Syrian who had three restaurants, very successful restaurants in Damascus, bombed, lost everything, spent years coming through Athens, Lebanon, eventually made it to England, did all sorts of jobs, had 12 pounds to his name, and then bit by bit started what he loved doing, which was cooking and food. And through Syrian friends in London, they started doing fundraisers, and he got known. He started a pop-up. He crowdsourced the, the seed money for this restaurant, and finally, it was meant to open in December. Finally, after lockdown, opened in in, um, in May. And it's joyous. And he keeps giving back because a pound from every meal is given back to a chari- charity for Syrian refugees. So while this is very, very special in London, uh, the Syrian kitchen, I'm sure there, there are similar ventures all over, uh, all over Europe particularly, where people are cooking up their passions. I think that's very true. I was reading a piece about Gaziantep just in southern Turkey mm. and how many Syrian entrepreneurs have, have set up there and sort of transformed the food culture to some extent. I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of time in Damascus. I went to one of the pop-ups you're talking about and actually I just transported there. The food is so unique, so amazing. So that's one to put on my bucket list yeah. too. Uh, Marcello, how about you? I'm just coming back from Paris, where I actually arrived the first night when restaurants and bars could open until 11 p.m. So Dupari was sitting outside and chatting. It reminded me like like, uh, millions of birds in trees. It was an overwhelming (laughs) atmosphere of freedom and happiness and made me really smile. It was beautiful. Oh, dreamy. Well, there's nothing like (laughs) confinement to then make... Just having a wonderful glass of rosé in the street. Even and I, more special. I love the thought yes. of chorus of voices, Marcella. That's so descriptive. <laughs> I do think Paris has that. Some of the streets and boulevards are like ballrooms and the way that the acoustics work in Paris. Sort of so, so many layers and it can be very enchanting. Uh, it's a nice image, exactly. And what about you, Sophie? What is your discovery? Um, well... I'm talking about the shoes on my feet. I went to an amazing pop-up. It's a Greek brand called Ancient Greek Sandals. And there's a pop-up on Chilton Street last week, and I bought some sandals. But they are so amazing. I've walked miles in them, because I inadvertently took them on holiday um, and just stomped in them. But the story behind them is so nice, because it's a brand set up by two Greek entrepreneurs. One of them's based in Corfu, and they're sort of instilled with lots of ancient Greek stories and apparently an ancient Greek myth is that all the goddesses and gods wore sandals that were crafted on Crete and they had these sort of mystical magic powers and so each shoe is sort of instilled with some of these stories and I think it's really very lovely and also the provenance is all Greek and the materials are all very beautiful. And dear listeners, I've just had a peek under the table at Sophie's feet and they look sort of clogs with this soft leather binding them with sort of open at the front and the back and they do look unbelievably comfortable. There's a wing, there's an Hermes wing on each one. (laughs) (laughs) That's the Greek accent. (laughs) There's a little insight into my foot where everybody. <laughs> well, I think it's time we welcome our first guest for this episode. 
We've just released our third issue of Confect, and in the fashion pages, we take a road trip across Slovakia. Slovakia isn't the first place you think of when you talk about fashion, but the country has a rich history in local craft, from macrame to embroidery to pleating. One designer who's working with local craftswomen to combine traditional Slovakian weaving with a modern approach to slow fashion is Kostina Shipilova, whose chic designs are inspired by her environment. And she joins us now. Hi, Sophie. It's great to speak to you at last after the, such a wonderful production for um, Confect 3. Let me start just by asking you about the shoot that we did because it was such a wonderful road trip, really. You left Bratislava and went with two photographers and a writer, translator, all the way to Telgat, which is your sort of home village, a small town. Tell me about that trip. It all started in my atelier in Bratislava, uh, where I have my wooden looms and I'm currently working on a tapestry. So we first were documenting uh, the work in an atelier itself. And then we all went together to Telgat. And first you start, you know, in a city where everything looks different and you suddenly move to more villagey and full of hills countryside. And... It was just an amazing trip. The whole journey, we were so much looking forward to meet my parents uh, hosting us there with the dinner. <laughs> and my mom cooked a lovely halushki, which is a typical dish in Slovakia, with sheep cheese. And so with all the team, we were hosted in our cottage in a small village called Tolgat. It couldn't be more convict to my mind to go en famille to <laughs> a wonderful cottage, but such an amazing reception and such an insight into the brand, which really is steeped in this sense of your traditions and your manufacturing, but the craft and the sort of emotion that goes into garments from Telgat. Yes, it is really important to me it just makes more sense to me to create this way. It's just like very natural to me since I was small. I was observing all these traditions and, you know, I grew up joining the folklore group in Telgard and since I was a small kid and we have so many garments and I was always having this time with my mom like, hey, can we just observe our heritage textiles? So she just took it out of wardrobe and placed it on a table. And I always remember these moments. It was like a celebration of something you are just staring at and you cannot really understand how it is possible to make such beautiful things only by hand, you know? So for me, it's something very, very natural and very, very deeply rooted in my soul. After I came back to Slovakia, after my travels, I've just decided that I want to create this way. I thought it's just about this fact that you create something for a longer, you invest lots of energy into it, but then it lasts so many years after you create it, you know, your your families are keeping it as a treasures. So why not to create something similar nowadays? These garments last for generations. I'm interested because you talk about your travels. You studied in Oslo, you worked in Denmark, you worked in Paris, and you have this cosmopolitan outlook. And I'm interested in your fashion, how then you take these old traditions and how you ensure that they are contemporary. How do you work with the craftspeople in your, in your region to make sort of contemporary fashion? So I try to 
adjust a color palette, a silhouette to more contemporary looks. So basically I visit these people, I all know them by person, it's like a small family there, you know, so it's like uh, you have neighbors doing this, you have person doing that, so I, I come to them with my imagination in, in my head or a picture or a drawing and we discuss like we could do this certain technique, but in a different material or in a different silhouette. So it's more wearable these days. And for sure I was influenced by this Scandinavian aesthetic, which is very minimalistic and neutral. Concerning the silhouettes, there is a bit of influence from France. So, for example, when we create linen textiles, I observed in France that it's very common to wear linen to really show that you don't need to iron it all the time. It is natural characteristic with a bit of crinkles and, and so on. So all these small elements I combine together and see which similarities have we in Slovakia to these countries and to these cultures. And I was trying to make something like a fusion of all what I lived and to create more like an images. It's not only garment, but when you see the garment in a certain country or a landscape, it's my images in my head, which I want to tell and show people. Yeah, it's, it's lots of discussions with craftsmen and I'm showing them the direction where we could take this technique. Some elements we are keeping because they are perfect as they were 100 years ago, you know. So it's about being very sensitive what to adjust and what to keep original. This is all very familiar to me because uh, I'm originally from Prague. On the, once it was one country, Czechoslovakia. <laughs> so my grandmother um, has also like blouses uh, from like this linen you are describing. I know it so well. And I'm wondering also if you make it contemporary, are you wearing your clothes every day? Or is it something very precious you are wearing only for special occasions when you're going out? Yes, so until now I was wearing it uh, mostly for special occasions. But I created um, a new line which is launching these days. So these garments will be more for everyday wear. Because before in my collections we were using hand-woven uh, textiles and these vintage pieces of linen. So it's really something special. I wanted to create something you can wear more often. So it is these pieces which you can find uh, on my website and online now. Where we are using these small elements like, as you mentioned, the blouses. So they are hand-smoked by the craftsman who is actually making them for our folklore costumes. But we just adjusted the material and the shapes a little bit so you can have it as contemporary pieces. Christina, what struck me um, when, when we were researching this piece is that you said that you're taking embroidery and decoration back to its sort of original function as a sort of a ballast for the edge of garments. It's not really a decoration. And in your mind, you've taken a lot of the colour away as well, which is also returning to some of the original kind of pre sort of early dyeing techniques. In what sense is the brand taking Slovakian craft back to, you know, how it really was before industrial chemicals became involved? For me, it was a very interesting fact that actually when we looked at garments which were made more than a hundred years ago, the colors were more pale, the yarns were really just cotton, uh, linen, you know, very natural. 
and after the industrial revolution of course there came this influence also after people were immigrating to US for example they brought lots of glitter glitters and you know this crazy colorful uh, little pearls or you know little stones so actually my interest was going more to the past actually these looks were for me even more contemporary than after the revolution so you have to look very very much into past in order to see something futuristic it doesn't need to be always about digitalization or or developing new futuristic materials of course there are so many directions now with new sustainable materials and so on but for me it's about looking back and really like into the past with small differences and with what we have right now you can create a very contemporary pieces. The uh, photographs in the article in Confact are wonderful, but one particularly strikes me, and it's of a very, very old lady sitting by her fabric at work. And it strikes me that a lot of these crafts, a lot of these techniques from the artisans would be at risk of dying out with that generation. And I, I wonder how they welcome you and your fashion enterprise to help these skills, these artisanal skills stay alive. I think they are very, very happy to contribute to something we are working on together. When you show to them that it will be maybe more simple and minimalistic, but they like the look, they somehow enjoy that it's so peaceful and their energy and their embroidery or their macrame technique. So I think they are really happy about it, that it's actually keeping their craft alive. And I'm learning from them how to make, for example, a macrame. Exactly with this uh, old lady, Yulia Chubanova. we were uh, doing this macrame cloth together behind the table. And she was doing it from left side and me from right side. And we met in the middle where we made a knot together. And it was very symbolic taking over of a craft uh, skills from this amazing lady. Well, Christina Shipilova, thank you so much for joining us on the programme today. Coming up, we'll be recommended some summer fragrances by the perfumer Lynn Harris. And we meet musician Priya Ragu. And we'll get a lesson in the art of knipe. Find out what that is shortly. But while we're on the subject of craft, let's head to Greece, where traditional ways of making are still alive and well. From the textiles of Metsovo and Yanina in the country's north, to the wood furniture of Skiros and the ceramics of Crete. Building on her deep-rooted love of antiques and objects with a story... Boston-born, Athens-based Andrea Mistakos decided to take the plunge and recreate some of her favourite Greek objects with a twist, all created under her own brand, Anthologist. Our reporter Daphne Carnesis visits Andrea in her newly renovated cottage on the island of Paros to discover the sweet spot where preserving and redefining craft come together. Yes, this round piece. So this is a rosette. It's actually from the island of Idra, which I love. Andrea Mitsagos has worked in the hospitality business for the better part of 26 years, and she recently completed the renovation of a farmhouse in Paros with the help of local builders. We are in Sifara, which is a region of the island of Paros and the Kikladis Islands in Greece. It's a beautiful, small, about 35 square meter farmhouse that I spent very beautiful time renovating. 
that's a soulful, very quiet place, which I'm sure you can hear just the birds and maybe a rooster. It's a perfect space just for one. We're in a beautiful outdoor seating area. Um, what, what can you tell us about where we are? Well, this is really my everyday living space. So we built the pergola last year um, with bamboo from the island, actually. And then um, this area is, I love so much because of all of the textiles and color and how it plays with the light. Mitsakos grew up in Boston, where she cultivated her love of collecting beautiful objects. With an interior designer mother and an antique dealer aunt, her education started early. So since, you know, childbirth, basically, I was dragged around flea markets and bazaars and always at that level, I think, um, level meeting height, actually, because, you know, when you're a kid, you're, you're drawn to things because you can touch them. And then um, the education started there with, you know, Sunday mornings really early at sunrise, digging through boxes of old brass objects and ceramics and linens and textiles and, and learning the story of each of them. Mitsakos' summer house is nicknamed Panito Cottage after Pan, the ancient Greek god of shepherds and flocks. It's a name inspired by the goats and sheep in the surrounding fields. Her house is filled with objects from a lifetime of collecting. Take her desk, supported by two old stone griffins topped with a piece of marble she salvaged and polished. Nearby, there's a whimsical grasshopper-shaped coffee table made of rattan by an artist from Mexico. And everything Mitsakos collects has a story to it, not least the objects found in the bedroom. Oh, wow. I love pattern. I've been called a maximalist, so I, I definitely attribute <laughs> this room to that. I have two Armenian Suzanis, one hanging on the wall in this really beautiful taupe color with bright reds, petroleum blue, cinnamon, yellow, saffron. And then the one on the bed is a very, very vibrant green, similar to the, the frames I have around my shutters here. And um, I, I love color, so that was really important to me. And then the curtains hanging around the bed are antique. They're actually from Crete. They're over 100 years old, and I cut them, even though the curtain lady that I go to was <laughs> encouraging me not to cut them. She said, what, did you, what do you want to do with this? Are you crazy? And I said, I am, so let's cut them and hang them. But how does Mitsakos go about sourcing these unique objects? I've been collecting a lot of things, a lot of different things for a very long time and I've lived in a lot of places and sometimes you use things you know what, what might be suitable for an apartment in high-rise in New York or Miami and then bring it to my apartment in Athens and it has a different function or a different beauty in a way and when I started going to flea markets here in Greece I realized I was drawn to certain things textiles specifically Greek textiles specifically Armenian textiles also I started collecting because my mother's mother was Armenian and then also ceramics so I find the inspiration especially for anthologist ceramics collection from old designs while I'm not an artist I do draw the inspiration from a lot of things that were used in like the 40s the 50s oh I've shipped crazy things from crazy parts of the world <laughs> I'm always carrying crazy things on the plane. There's a really beautiful painting uh, in my bedroom that I bought with a friend of mine in Crete. 
and we had to talk our way onto the plane with it also and it had rusty nails like coming out of the back and everything but we just sort of you know coasted on to the flight and now it hangs proudly here. What started as a hobby soon turned into a more serious endeavour. After helping clients in hospitality from Dubai and New York to LA and Buenos Aires source one-of-a-kind objects, Mitsakos decided to turn her attention to Greek objects and craft with a new business, Anthologist. Under this umbrella, she reproduces some of the timeless objects she's found in Greece with the help of local craftspeople. So we have a ceramics line that was launched last year with a new collection coming out for this summer for the shops that will be opening. We have an entire brass collection, which is, it's new, old. So there are objects that I've found tweaked a little bit for modern functionality. And so we produce those in Athens. A few pieces of jewelry that I covet and wanted to sort of replicate in a way that had a bit more of a modern touch to it. And then some textiles also working with some artists in Athens. Preserving culture is really the new sustainability when you think about it. I mean, sustainability doesn't have to be necessarily something green or how you process your trash or something. I mean, it's really preserving a culture. And if we don't continue to work with these craftsmen, then they will die. I mean, the people that we make our handbags with, it's third generation. The foundry is fifth generation. My ceramics artisan is third generation from Crete, but he's based in Athens. So it's important to keep these businesses going. And then on the left wall are two wool and multicolor flocati, which you really don't see too often. You usually see flocati, which is the wool like sheep. Finishing off in Mitsakos' bedroom, where we started our tour of Panito Cottage, she takes us through some of her final favorite finds. Probably were some kind of curtain panel at some point. Um, Those are well over 100 years old also. There's a lot of pieces that I don't want to part with. That's really a huge problem yeah. when you're, you know, object obsessed and yeah, antique yeah. obsessed and you're finding these wonderful things and then you end up having households full of them, but it is difficult to part with things. Despite the number and huge variety of objects in the cottage, everything seems to blend together as if it was always intended. And that's what maximalism is all about, says Mitsakos. I think that the trend of minimalism, while it will still stay around, I do think that it will slowly change. And I think the past year has taught us that a lot. When you think about, you know, a beautiful loft apartment in New York or Miami or London, and it had very few things in it because that was the trend and maybe people were wanted to highlight a beautiful piece of art or something. And so while I understand that, it's also true that our life was very much spent outside the home. So the past year has taught us that I think people want to be surrounded by things and also want to sit on their sofa that's comfortable, not sitting on a sofa that is there because it's just a beautiful piece of art in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I think that that will change that mentality quite a bit. Thanks to Daphne Carnesis for that report and her lovely piece about Andrea in issue three of Confect. Marcella, what else can we expect from the new issue? So, for example, our main fashion story, which I'm very proud, is about Maison Rabi Carus. It's a beautiful location of his atelier and store in Paris. It's, an, it's in a courtyard at Boulevard Raspail. 
Um, and it's located in an old former theater, huge spaces, beautiful, like beautiful atmosphere, very quiet, but still at the Boulevard Raspai. I was there sometimes in winter and I put on me a simple evening dress just to see how it looks worn. And um, I was struck by the amazing couture fit. It was really, I said, wow, it looks like really couture. And I felt immediately in love because when I put a jacket on me or a trench, it was the same effect. And then I knew we have to report about Rabi. And then we have, of course, uh, the Swiss designer Ariane Birchler, which is not so well known, but is amazing. She worked at Dries van Noten and has uh, already an excellent collection, which she showed at a fashion show in Zurich, which was really also breathtaking. And so it's very worth to read it and to explore her collections. And then at the end, we have, of course, our inspiring fashion shoots. In Marseille is one, and the other one is the Marbella Club. And uh, then we have also an accessory special photograph by Anna Ducky in Berlin. So there is really a lot to explore. And we were just talking in the studio about the amazing story by Daphne Ezar about the Camargue, which is just really breathtaking and brilliant portraits. It's almost a fashion story in the sense that it's just beautiful garments crafted and the kind of preservation of the Provencal heritage there. You were quite struck by that story too. Well, yes, and it's this unexpected access that you get to unwrap something you never really knew about and you sort of delve deeper and deeper into this fascinating, surprising culture um, that I think Confect is so good at finding those stories and then photographing them brilliantly. And then for me, it's always the journalism, the words, the telling of the story is just very sweet. Well, elsewhere in the pages of Confect, we sent our reporter Hester Underhill to the South Tyrolean hotel and spa, Melamontis, to find out about some traditional mountain spa techniques. Here she discovered the art of knipe, and so we thought we'd get her to teach us. The health benefits of submerging oneself in cold water have been recognised since Roman times, but it's a Bavarian priest named Sebastian Kneipp who is known today as the father of modern hydrotherapy. In the mid-1800s, Kneipp believed he cured his tuberculosis by stimulating his circulatory system with cold water in order to boost his immune system and rid his body of disease. He went on to research and promote the health benefits of the techniques he'd used on himself and quickly gained a wide following in Germany and the South Tyrol, where his teachings are still in practice today. There are a number of specially designed spots across the region where you can try them for yourself. And, failing that, locate the closest rocky stream, remove your shoes and socks, and prepare to get splashy. The most common form of knipe involves wading in cold mountain water. Make sure your feet and legs are nice and warm before you plunge them in, for maximum effect. Walk around lifting each foot fully out of the water with each step. Once your skin starts tingling, it's time to get out. Not only is this a good way of stimulating your circulatory system, but it's particularly refreshing after a long day hiking in the Dolomites, and its proponents claim can even help get rid of varicose veins. Other techniques include putting your face in cold water, preferably with eyes open, to refresh and tighten the skin, and cold arm baths, which involve submerging your hands and wrists as an effective stress buster. 
Try it for yourself next time you're in the region. Or if you're not ready to take the plunge, you could also trial it in your bathroom sink. <laughs> well, thank you, Hester. But actually, I should credit Marcello as introducing me to Kneipp. I think we dined in the most amazing spot in Zurich, and it was adjacent to Kneipp Centre. And she explained what it was. But Marcello, you must have done some kniping in your time. Yes, of course, but also in a luxury five-star hotel in Capri, where where it was explained to me by an Italian doctor. So Kneipp is quite famous, I think. But what I like, it this is so raw. You don't need anything. You can do it yourself. It's so raw and basic, because usually like spa and treatments are like very luxury and velvet and whatever. And Kneipp is just very, very basic. And that's what I like it. I loved <laughs> listening to that piece because uh, the sound effects made me almost tempted to try it. But for me, spa treatments are a little bit more about sort of aromatherapy and gentle. I'm not as brave. Although I love the idea of how you must feel after kniping, I think. Well, I've been inadvertently kniping for years because I love cold water and plunging into cold water just so amazingly for the body and is so uplifting. So there is something definitely so electric about getting out of cold water from drying off. And in a way, this is a sort of medicalised hydrotherapy version of that kind of cold dip. But it's quite interesting to look at all the different Kneipp centres around Bavaria and the Tyrol. And all they look almost like obstacle courses with the arm dipping and then the the wading area and nuns are doing it and you can go to monasteries and do it. So I think we've got to get you over there and convert Gillian. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll try it. Maybe we should start one in London, a little Knipe Centre here in London in Primrose Hill. Let's do it. <laughs> Well, still to come on Confect Corner, we have a sensory overload as Sophie sniffs out some scents for the summer. There's a treat for the ears as we meet the pop singer Priya Raghu and Robert Bound will be musing on the exhilarating feeling of diving headfirst into a cool pool. You are listening to Confect Corner. Confect Corner is brought to you in association with Edelweiss Air. Edelweiss is Switzerland's leading premium leisure carrier with an impressive food portfolio to match. So whether you're missing those Mykonos skies or Ibiza nights, why not head there via Zurich? You'll receive the warmest of welcomes and an impeccable in-flight experience. Discover your dream destination. Whether you're gearing up for the Greek islands or mulling the Maldives, craving a hit of Havana or longing for Cancun, head to flyedelweiss.com for direct flights from Zurich to over 70 destinations, including more than 30 around the Mediterranean. With Edelweiss Air, you'll discover the most beautiful side of every destination. You're listening to Confect Corner, and now we're going to be talking about summer scents. Marcella, Gillian, are you seasonal perfume wearers or do you have one signature fragrance? Oh, for me, it's really important to have a different winter scent and a different summer scent. And this year, I've just discovered a fragrance which I absolutely adore. Uh, it's Joe Malone's Wood Sage and Sea Salt. 
And it's very original, but not alternative. And there's something about that alchemy of very natural, woody sage and the crispness of sea salt that makes you reminiscent of waves on beaches and turquoise waters. But what I love about it, it's also right for the city, summer in the city. There's something quite urban about it and just fits my mood perfectly. Marcello, how about you? Do you alternate as the seasons go go through or do you just have one base fragrance? It's not only seasons, it's also occasions. I think one should have a scent wardrobe depending on your moods and of course also of seasons. And I think in summer, of course, it has to be lighter. My favorite one is, which reminds me each year of a summer because I have a huge bottle at home, <laughs> which never seems to end, is the Eau de Cologne Imperial by Guerlain. It's the oldest actually scent of the house Guerlain. It was created in 1853, so a very, very old scent, but it's still, it's so fresh and light, so you splash it on you more than perfume. It's more something you put generously, and it's very light and refreshing, and for me it's real summer. I've been wearing this amazing fragrance by Clune Keen, who's an Irish perfumier. Because we're now going out in London, and there's a sense of occasion when I spritz it's very kind of patchouli it feels like an evening fragrance and it transforms my mood and I think that fragrance can be really wonderful for that it it is an occasion and it's a sense of celebration in a way and a kind of moment of transformation so it's really beautiful it's called a la biltaine and I feel like then in the day I want to wear some vetiver and feel energized and fragrance really is it's not just for the other people around you to be seductive and to make an impact but really it is how you feel wearing a certain fragrance Oh, absolutely, Gillian. Well, I wanted to see what makes a good summer perfume. So earlier on this week, I nipped out of Midori House to visit one of our neighbours, Perfumer H, a fragrance shop and laboratory run by Lynn Harris. Trained in perfume making in Paris, Harris opened her shop in 2015 and creates scents for every season. Summer 2021 includes fig, orange leaf, heliotrope, incense water and silver. And I went to give them a smell for myself. Hello. Hey, Sophie. Nice to see you. Welcome. Welcome to Perfuma H. Lynn, hello. It's lovely to be here in your beautiful atelier. In fact, we're in a very cosy basement. It looks like a sort of lovely lab surrounded by vials and bottles. But we wanted to talk about some of the new scents that you've done for summer. And it's quite interesting that summer is a, I mean, it's quite a unique time for fragrance in a way, because people are out sort of on holiday and beaches and you live life in a slightly different way and maybe the concepts are also slightly different but I wanted to start with one of your newest fragrances which is called Silver and it's really incredibly beautiful and nuanced and maybe you could introduce it I should say it's Silver Birch (laughs) which is more than a beautiful tree and it's lovely white bark but it's a very elegant scent Yes, silver. It's quite interesting because my concept behind silver is it's, it's, it's quite a, a liberating woody fragrance that um, is for the summer with 
with contrasting cooling notes and warm notes. So I wanted to have this sort of opposing effect of materials. So I've got the coolness of angelica and pepper, which I thought was quite nice in the summer months. And then I've got this sort of warmth of, of coriander with a little bit of spice, Indian spice, which obviously gives it that sort of crisp warmness. And then I've wrapped, I've fused around some beautiful white woods, so blonde woods of sandalwood, papyrus, and a little bit of cedar. So it's sort of, you know, it's, it, for me, it's being naked in the woods um, and just really letting go of yourself and your senses um, and just letting the fragrance permeate your skin while you're, you're just, you know, breathing the, the beautiful air and, and feeling the sunshine on your, your body. It's amazing how transporting your descriptions are because when you first smell it, you kind of have this wonderful woody hit and then it, it, the imagination just kind of goes to that beautiful glade or <laughs> some lovely kind of hot... It reminds me of sort of Doc Chivago's summer scenes where it's incredibly hot but like grassland and beautiful little groves of these silver, silver birches. But there's also an amazing scent, which is almost a bit punchy, a fig, which is a contrast to this in many ways. And it's interesting because fig you know, has been produced by so many different perfume houses. But this one really feels to me quite unique and it's very, very compelling. Yeah, I mean, I love the simplicity of the word fig. And I just thought I've been playing around for so many years with this fragrance. I connected with this fig. It's, um, it's a warm fig. It's playing with the fig tree and the leaf. So the leaf is very important, the greenness of the leaves, but then combining that with the fruit, but really getting the sap and the sort of balance and harmony of the sap with the, with the green leaf. And, and I did that by bringing in some rose, a really beautiful Turkish rose, and some pepper with a, a lovely sort of cedar backdrop. It's a Texan a Texas, which is um, one of my favourite uh, cedar woods. And actually, there's some frankincense as well in the fig, um, which comes from Somalia. And it really, it goes on this fragrance. But a lot of people say, gosh, it's not like fig. But there is this sort of nostalgic sort of glow in the background as you wear it of the sort of fig, um, which sort of comforts you. Um, and it's that sort of, as, as you said, Sophie, it's, like, it's that sort of nostalgic sort of jerk, that, that re nuance that you really love when you're wearing fragrance and just, and especially in the summertime, that, that takes you in that garden where you can just totally be you and, and relax and just, yeah, just go with nature. <laughs> So another scent that caught my nose, as it were, <laughs> is orange leaf, and it's so evocative of summer, possibly more the sort of Iberian summer. <laughs> it's just such a beautiful, beautiful scent, but it, it definitely has that, that orangey, but then very woody combination, and it's one of my, also one of my favourite trees. We're really going for the trees <laughs> here today. 
that's right, Sophie. I mean, um, the the tree is really the essence of this this collection, and sort of, you know, from the silver birch to the fig tree, and then orange. I mean, I just love the orange tree, and in perfumery we call it the pig of perfumery because we can use every aspect of it. And um, so, orange leaf is really sort of giving praise to that notion. And here I've used um, the orange leaf, um, which we, we extract a material called pettigram, and I've fused it with the fruit, and I've fused it as well with the absolute from the, the leaves and the twigs, which is called, it's very interesting material, which is eau de brew, which is like sort of the rubbish. If you translate it in French, it's sort of the rubbish from the orange tree we sort of this notion so there's no waste as well with the orange tree so this cologne is just really um, in celebration of of those beautiful orange notes and I've brought in some tarragon um, so there's some beautiful sort of lavender tarragon I've got the oranges from Valencia I use that and um, there's a neroli in there which comes from Tunisia It's amazing to think of a, a Texan cedar. I mean, these are like people now, aren't they? <laughs> and then in a Stetson, and then <laughs> we're in Valencia. Yeah, it, it, again, it's, it takes you on a journey. It's so lovely to be here in London, just thinking about, you know, the Somalian frankincense and the journey that these ingredients have, have come on. It would be great to talk about your approach and your changing approach to sustainability and, you know, provenance, because I know you're you're in the process of, well, I suppose, sort of rejigging some of these things. I mean, this is an amazing workshop and you've expanded on, onto Crawford Street to make a refill centre, which is incredibly, well, it's quite pioneering in your industry. But also you've got, you've got some plans to do similar things around Europe. Yeah, no, it's a really exciting moment. I mean, we realised last year um, at the beginning of lockdown how people were really reaching out to us with the candles and uh, the reusability because basically we do this service where we refill candles um, because every, all our candles are made um, in this beautiful hand-blown vessel. And what we want is for you to come back with the, with the vessel um, and then you get a new candle for half price. And it's just been incredible. Last year we, we doubled our sales overnight and um, we were quite taken back so a site came up on Crawford Street a friend of mine um, had a, an empty space and um, and I and we just said yeah let's let's take it so I've set up a working uh, refill station we're calling it and it's a workshop where we were making everything refilling for our customers so our vision is to have one of these stations in four corners of the of the world and it's a place where you can buy products but you can also see the process of making for me because I've been in the industry for, for for 30 years now I think it's it's really important the transparency and for people to really understand the whole process of of what I do as a perfumer so you know the refill stations will have an element of the fields the you know the where where things come from you will you know I do want to sort of build this sort of connection between my materials and the fragrance itself I think you know we all connect so well with food and fashion but this industry has been so hidden and guarded for so many years and I just really want to sort of change that a little bit if I can
And now to one of Switzerland's rising stars, St. Gallenborn Priya Raghu, only started making music seriously in 2017. But what she lacks in time, she certainly makes up for with talent, charm and a striking sense of style that proves the Swiss Tamil artist knows exactly who she wants to be. Here we meander through Priya's speedy rise to musical heights and how, in partnership with her brother Jack Nagold, she's managed to fuse a love for R&B and hip-hop with a rather more traditional musical education at home. The whole music thing started when my dad decided to create a band when I was 10 years old. He played the tabla, my brother was playing the keys. He would rent a rehearsal room and instruments and invite people over to sing. And I think most of the influence came from playing these songs and somehow it was in us. Now when we create the songs, it's like it comes out part of it, you know, it definitely made me the person who I am. I always had like a deep connection with my brother. And you can really be yourself as well. It all really happened organically. When we were like, we should try and create music together, see if this is the, the right formula. And then it was. And after that, it happened. Every, everything happened so quickly. It was sometimes difficult to grow up between two cultures because I felt like I was living in two different worlds. But St. Gallen is such a beautiful city and a lot of amazing memories. But the thing is, since the music scene was so small back then, I decided to move out from St. Gallen to Zurich. Also, my friends were musicians and they all lived in Zurich and they started to create these jam sessions and open mics. Zurich is kind of the place to be for the music scene, you know. The state supports you in your art and it's called the Pop Credit. They believed in me like from the first day and they supported my brother. I'm really thankful for that because with that money, I was able to also do all this stuff. I went to New York for a half year. And I just told myself, okay, I'm not coming back until I have 10 songs. I like one friend, he's a musician, and he rented me his studio. And I was there while he was on tour. Me and my brother, we had a lot of Skype sessions. He would send me files over back and forth. And that's how we actually created most of the songs on the mixtape. I like to be able to represent the culture into what I do musically and visually. It was never like planned that we have to kind of represent the music, you know, the traditional music and the Western music, but it just really happened organically. And, and it feels like kind of a calling and also like a mission. I feel like when I'm there in Sri Lanka, there's, there's a lot of, I think, painful memory coming up, thinking of how hard it must have been to leave this country, leave everything behind and what this war also did to the people. And I can also see the houses, it's like broken down. And so it's it's rather like a painful memory. It's bittersweet. We found in love again. 
I feel like I just can bring something new to the table, mixing up these two worlds, but in a more playful way. I feel like there's so much more to discover, and I feel like I will find that out on the on this path. That was Priya Raghu, and she's touring Europe this November. Earlier, we learned about one splashy pastime, the art of knipe. And now we're going to end with a final thought from Robert Bound about another diving. Summer is finally here, and we're all looking forward to taking a dip in the pool. But do you dare risk your ego and embrace the dive. Here's Rob. Diving was the difference. Diving divided the before, at which sat the knock-kneed, pale and callow youth, and the after, where strode a sun-bronzed young Hercules, casually slipping headlong into cool water, making hardly a wave, yet causing a thousand hearts to flutter. Diving separated women from girls, men from boys, the Aravistes from the well and truly arrived, unpacked and already enjoying a cocktail before supper. Thanks very much. In the Great Reckoning, diving divided the sheep who shed the golden fleece from the goats condemned forever to grind their teeth in the suspiciously warm kiddies' pool. Diving was a rite, a portal to a higher understanding. How much of all that turned out to be true? Diving is a performance. People always look and judge. It's simply eye-catching, an aesthetic interlude. Diving looks good, and those that look good look better doing it. Litheness defined and physicality employed simply to flatter gravity. It's an elegance, a generosity. Diving has its particular subtleties and graces that become second nature, practised but not rehearsed. Falling with a little flex, the tuck of the head, the reach of the arms, the arch, the pitch, the entry. Unlike a tennis serve or a tee shot, diving is divisible from the action that precedes it. It is a sport, an acrobatic, aquatic, Olympic discipline in its own right. It's very much a thing in itself, apart from the swimming that it might lead to. For often the diver will simply dive, rise, tread water for a spell, and then climb back to their portion of pontoon, their warm rock. Doing anything head first is impressive. Breaking unknown waves with the softest section of important bone is demonstrably counterintuitive. The bit where your brain is saying, don't do it, but you do it anyway. You're taught, really, to stylize a fool. Perhaps diving is metaphorical. If you can master something you're scared of and learn to revel in the quick click of fear into exhilaration, then you have a skill for life that, like languages or chess or the piano, you'll always value. In Haunts of the Black Masseur, the most beautifully diversionary alleluia to the culture of swimming, Charles Sprawson wrote of the Swedish high divers who wowed early 20th century crowds from boards 60 feet high and from which, as they leapt, they appeared to hover, suspended, before plunging downwards with backs arched and arms outstretched. These swallow divers became an artistic reference, defining the heroic as painted by Brooklyn and Riviere, as photographed by Baron Corvo and defined by Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. Diving is an ideal. After all, it's not the only way of getting into the water. 
It's pointlessly graceful, and therein lies its essence. Diving still makes all the difference. Well, thank you to Rob for that wonderful insight. And Marcella, I expect you dive rather well. No, not at all. I prefer to stay on the surface and keeping the overview uh, of the underwater world. I'm more a snorkeler and a swimmer. Um, I see. Since, since I had a, a really a nice encounter with a huge barracuda once, I really keep to stay on the surface of the water. <laughs> Head up like a swan. I can just see it. Gillian, um, yeah. are you known for your wonderful dolphin-like leaps? No, I'm not a diver, but I love the way Rob touched on the sport of watching a professional divers. And for me, this year's Olympics, if it does happen, I'm going to be glued to the television watching the diving because I find it so awe-inspiring. And first of all, you see the drama of the real dive, and then you watch the slow motion, and it's so extraordinary. And I think, what is it? I'm obsessed with watching diving. It's quite compulsive for me. I think I completely agree. It's the one... Olympic sport that has me completely hooked, but also the fearlessness of those divers. The top boards are so high. It's just wonderfully courageous, and I think that Rob really has that in the piece. It's a metaphor for life, and it's a sense of art as well. I was just dreaming about that raft again in Kusnak because it's a perfect diving platform for me. I love a dive, but I can't really do it much higher than just a lovely kind of springboard or a raft. Once it gets past a few feet, then I start feeling a little bit trembly. <laughs> and then the whole sort of operation can go quite swiftly wrong. <laughs> well, before I flew back to London from Switzerland, I did spend a lovely afternoon watching people dive off that very same raft. And the thing is, there is something seal-like about it. So I can imagine the pleasure for you, Sophie, when you just literally take the plunge and just slice through the water. I think that must be quite wonderful. I think it's as close to flying as we're going to get. That <laughs> sense of freedom, the leap. Well, um, on that, um, plunge uh, that's all we have time for on this episode issue 3 of Confect is out now and you can subscribe at confectmagazine.com while you're on our website why not sign up to our weekly newsletter Confect Compact for interviews fashion tips wine recommendations and recipes Confect Corner was produced by Holly Fisher Carlotta Ribello and Paige Reynolds We'll be back next month with more. But until then, from me, Sophie Grove in London, goodbye and thanks for listening.